Before we get to today's podcast, we want to thank our sponsor. And as with many of our sponsors, we can speak to this directly because we work with him directly. His name is David Kaut. He's an attorney with 30 years experience. His areas of practice are real estate purchases and sales, title insurance, wills, trusts, estates, probate, small businesses, and civil litigation. He serves South Broward and North Miami-Dade counties. Definitely reach out to him. Here is the number for you. It's 954 430 3155. Again, it's 954 430 3155. You should work with David Cout. We're working with him with our business. Definitely a great person to get to know. And also, today's Five Reasons podcast is brought to you by Space Wolf. Ethan, we've been working with Space Wolf as well. We're kind of, you know, basically using the companies that we've been working with as a means to sponsor the program. Space Wolf has been selling our advertisements. So, David Cow has been working on our contracts and all the legal stuff we've been doing to establish our business. Space Wolf has been helping us get advertising. If you want to advertise with us, go to spacewolf.com and we have ad spaces on our podcast, the Heat Beat podcast, Three Yards Per carry the new pitch invasion podcast balls cast if you want to be involved with us spacewolf.com is a place to be ethan yeah it definitely is and it's not just with us either although obviously we want you to look at our pages first but they sell everything there you you basically you want to sell a banner at a soccer field you can sell that you can sell t-shirt space i mean all kinds of different things on their website they've got like 30 or 40 different medium on there that you can pick through choose your prices and do it all online it's very very easy so it's a lot easier than you would typically have to do it whether you are somebody who wants to advertise your product or whether you are somebody who wants to get advertising for your particular service so definitely reach out to space wolf you can find them on twitter at ad space wolf and again that's two f's at the end so a d s p a c e w o l f f you visit spacewolf.com same spelling and that is how you get involved with us and now let's get to the podcast Welcome into episode 48 of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here, as always, with Chris Whittingham. You can find us on Apple iTunes, also on Google Play, Stitcher, CastBox, several other apps. Follow us at Five Reasons Sports. That's the number five reason sports. We run polls, post all the episodes, and definitely follow all the other podcasts in our network. We now have four others in the network. Added one just today, although it hasn't officially launched yet. Chris Whittingham is going to be hosting Pitch Invasion, so check out that Twitter feed, Pitch Invasion 5R. We also have Ballscast, Miami Heat Beat, and our Dolphins podcast, Three Yards Per Carry. All right, we finally dipped our toes into the baseball waters here, Chris, last week. We had uh, Billy Gill from the Levitard show on with us to sort of give us the fans' perspective of what the Marlins have done this offseason and really over the past 20 years that Billy has been a fan. We called it the ballad of Billy Gill, kind of the, the <laughs> sadness. <laughs> The sadness, you know, he talked about sort of this cycle of hopelessness that you've been dealing with. We want to get a little bit more of an expert opinion here, somebody who's on the inside who can give us some of the stories that maybe were not told last offseason as the ownership change was made from Loria to the Bruce Sherman Jeter group and also all the trades that were made. And that's Craig Mish, our friend from SiriusXM. He's a sports host there, does a lot of MLB and fantasy stuff. You've also heard him on local sports radio here over the years and in numerous other platforms. And a Craig, certified newsbreaker as well. Craig, when did that happen exactly? Because <laughs> I because I, I remember you as being a really good radio host, but all of a sudden, like, you're breaking football news, like, out of nowhere uh, over the past few months. Like, uh, when did you become John Clayton? Because uh, <laughs> that seems to be the transition here. Let's be clear, okay? In uh, the Miami market, is there anything that I have not done yet? I mean, is there any place that I have? I, I, I'm like the new Goldie. I, I, you know what? I haven't done any hockey. But I've no. worked for QAM. I've worked for 790. I've done TV shows on Fox Sports Florida. I've worked for CBS4. So I've covered it all. And I just decided one day, guys, you know what? Let me just start being a newsbreaker. Let me just start breaking sports stories. I wish that was really the way it happened. You know what? It was really interesting. Last July... You know, and I had broken some stories through the years, but probably randomly, like, you know, a couple of them. But it really piqued my interest in July when when I had my first big Stanton story about the potential of maybe him being traded at the deadline. And I thought to myself, you know, I have all these contacts. I've made all of these friends through the years, both locally and nationally doing shows. What's to stop me 
from being like everybody else and kind of chasing down the Marlins offseason. Because I think we all knew this was going to happen. Like, yeah, I, well, at least I did. I, I thought that they were going to trade Stan. And I thought they would trade a lot of the guys, no matter who uh, took over the ownership. And I dove in, you know. I dove into all the baseball stories. I tried to break as many as I could. It was an incredible time. I've never felt pressure in doing anything in my life. Like I did that, hitting the send button on things that you have to be right on, you know? Like if you're wrong, <laughs> you're going to you get killed. And then, you know, a couple of people caught notice actually with me doing the baseball in the football world and said, you know, I'd like to help you do football. <laughs> and here we go. So, you know, I, I guess through the years is, is I've been friends with enough people and nice to enough people in the industry and in sports that they are kind of, uh, you know, paying me back for being nice to them, I guess. And it's been a great feeling. Not really sure where it's going to go, guys, if this is something that I'm going to you know, take to a different level, take to another role. But it definitely has been a lot of fun. And it's given me a following on social media and both in the local and national media that I never thought I would have had. So it's been pretty cool. And Ethan, that, that pressure is why you don't want to do it, right? You don't, you don't like that pressure of when you hit the send button, if it's wrong or whatever. That, that's precisely why you don't do it, right? Well, I, I did it for a while. And uh, you know, my problem with it was always that I was too conservative about it. I would get leads on stuff or hear things. And I would always be waiting for the second person to tell me it was true. And then I would end up Jason Cole, who we had on. Actually, he was our first guest here on the podcast. Jason gave me advice a long time ago when I was like 24 years old getting in the business. And he was like, write it or read it. And I never really took that advice completely because there were so many stories over the years that I had a piece of, but just wasn't comfortable enough going with the second source. And it's very hard for the local guys to get anything because no matter how well you're working a beat, one of the things that you got to do when you're working a beat is you, you have, like you said, you have to be right because you're dealing with those people every day. And, you know, a national guy can be wrong and it can be forgotten, you know, on a, during a Twitter cycle. But if you're wrong locally, you hear about it. And so I do think that local guys tend to be more conservative about that kind of stuff just because they, they feel like they have to be careful. And again, I have so many stories that I didn't break over the years because I had relationships with guys and I would know something about them or hear something about them or they would tell me something and I would kind of keep it to myself. And it's been funny as we've doing these heat, this heat story series, there are a lot of stories that are coming out now that I kind of heard about over the years, but I was always told by somebody else, oh no, that didn't happen. You know, that, that send button is so dangerous. You know, mm -hmm. it's, I mean, after I was done with doing everything in the off season, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to continue doing it. I was telling my wife, like, the pressure of doing this is just getting to me, you know, like sitting in front of the computer. The two moments of the offseason, I would say, that had the most where I was shaking, and then I'm, I'm happy to, you know, admit it and talk about it, was when I had the four uh, teams that Stanton would accept the trade to. I was the only one that had that, and I had had it for days. And just like you, Ethan, I didn't report it because somebody told me that one of the names was wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the teams was wrong. And then I got a text at about midnight on, I think it was Friday or Saturday night. We can go back and check saying, you know what? You had it, man. You were right. You got to report it right now or someone else is going to get it. And I put it out at 12 o'clock at night. It was the biggest single tweet that I have ever gotten attention for. The most views, the most in interactions. I, you know, it's still to this day of having the correct teams that Stanton would accept a trade to. And it was ridiculous. It was the Cubs, the Astros the Yankees and the Dodgers, you know, like the four best teams going back to last year. That was number one. And then the other one was when Ozuna was traded and I was mm -hmm. the first one to know. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is huge. They just traded Ozuna to the Cardinals. I'm the only one that has it. And I'm like, I, I hope this is right because if it isn't, you know, I'm in big trouble here and I hit it and it was right. And those were the two that I really remember me physically feeling like the rush of, 10 Red Bulls, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was wild. It was, it was something that I've never experienced before uh, doing TV, doing radio, speaking in front of millions of people on TV uh, in Miami. I don't know. Is it thousands of people? <laughs> Hundreds of people. <laughs> Whoever it is, I don't know what the ratings are, but you know, I just have never had that rush of the world waiting and telling me that they had notifications on me, like waiting for the next, it was just, it was something I'd never experienced. Yeah, it is a crazy thing. I mean, I go back to the 2014 off season with LeBron and, you know, oh, yeah. some of the information that I had and was sort of pushed away from, you know, by people that I trusted who were close to LeBron, who I would bring them something that I'd heard or gotten from a couple people. And they would be like, nah, yeah, you know, no, 
you know, he's having his cars moved because uh, he does that every summer. And I'd be like, <laughs> okay, but, but 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 there's pictures of him, and I I got word from somebody that they were sending the moving trucks over there today, and it's not out there yet. And they were like, no, it's he just does it every summer. You know, his kids have been enrolled in school in Cleveland or in Akron. Uh, well, no, that's no, no. And so you got a lot of that. And then I had one former Heat player who reached out to me and was like, why aren't you reporting that he's leaving? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, he's leaving. He's like, they gave him McRoberts at Granger. He's leaving. And I'm like, well, but his people are telling me he's not. And he's like, bleep his people. He's leaving. And I just, I, I sort of threw out a cryptic tweet that day saying that, you know, someone close to LeBron, you know, said that uh, McRoberts and Granger were not going to be enough to keep him. But I never went totally over the edge. And meanwhile, there were other guys who I knew were just guessing. I mean, there was... One guy, I'm not going to mention him in the pod here, but it's Chris Sheridan. Okay, was just guessing. <laughs> he was the one, wasn't he? The main one that I, had the story from the I, very beginning. I, well, I like I said, there were people who I think were just <laughs> guessing, so they ended up uh, being right. All right, so let, let's get to some of the stuff that. Um, I, again, we could do this for 60 minutes. So I, I want to get you to some of the stuff that you actually did here this summer that maybe didn't all, or this off season that maybe didn't all get out. But let's start with part one here, Craig, and just how, you know, because again, somebody who's entrenched in baseball down here and, 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 you know, obviously was, was entrenched with during the Laurie Sampson days as well. And, and now the transition to Sherman and Jeter, what can you tell us about what went down with the ownership change that maybe we don't know? And how did you think that was going to play out at the time for South Florida? Yeah, I, I thought it was becoming evident after all of the different groups were getting involved and getting shut down that there was this motive to to have Jeter on the team. And I think it played itself out that way. So so nothing really surprised me along those lines. I think the biggest thing that surprised me was that the notion that Jeter or anyone was going to keep this team together. And I and I understand the fire and I understand being upset and all of the stories and the articles and radio and TV crushing the guy because but guys that was going to happen no matter who took over the team. I mean I don't care what Jorge Mas says. It's very easy for him to say now that he was going to keep everybody together. I don't believe him. Tom Glavin's group had already come out and said that if he and Mitt Romney's group would have owned the team, they would have done the same thing. So none of this was really surprising to me. And it wasn't surprising because of how poorly the previous regime left this team in shambles, both from on the field and inside within the organization. They weren't making any money. How many times did we hear they were rounding third on the naming rights? You understand how big the naming rights of a stadium is, and they never got it in seven years or six years, whatever it was, the worst TV contract. They were left with basically nothing, and it was a ship that was sailing to nowhere. They fell on some guys and got lucky. They didn't develop their younger players, and I guess the bottom line was that I understand why people are upset, and they should be, because they lost the MVP of the league. They lost two great young players. They lost D. Gordon. But I think what people lose sight of is they lost their best player in a boating accident who died. And, and I think that is what really set everything in motion. And had that not happened, we could be you know, talking about a completely different situation, but we're not. So I personally didn't love some of the things that happened that we could get into. But in terms of the on the field moves, I have no issue with them whatsoever. I thought it had to be done. I thought they needed to start from scratch. Wasn't really surprised with anything, just, I guess, a little disappointed that baseball fans and baseball people who follow the game hadn't seen what some other teams were doing and how they were building, because that seemed to be the right way to do it. So when, so I want to ask a couple of follow-ups to that. The first one I want to ask is, uh, you, when you mentioned other owner, ownership groups are being turned away, why do you think, or why are you led to believe that the whole thing was basically a predetermined outcome of Derek Jeter and his group owning the team? Yeah, I think Rob Manfred, the, the commissioner of baseball, you know, wanted that group to own the team. I think that he wanted Derek Jeter to own it. And I think that, of course, money, Chris, is a huge factor in it. But I think that maybe what went down was that the, the commissioner of baseball realized that the only way to bring fans back and to have it succeed here would be with a figure that is universally as popular and loved as Derek Jeter. Now, it, it did not work out that way. And it's easy to go back now and say, how could you possibly think that? This guy for two months was the most hated baseball executive in the planet. But before all of this happened and before Jeter took over the team, if I said to you, give me one polished player in Major League Baseball in the last 20 years, you've never heard anything negative about that everybody loves, it would be Derek Jeter. So I think that he thought, OK, we have Derek Jeter in this spot. 
all of a sudden he's going to bring back all of the fans because of all the nonsense that happened in the past. People love Derek Jeter. They're going to believe in his ownership. They're going to believe in his group. And I think that that is inevitably the main reason why they ended up owning the team. They did end up spending more money than anyone else also and offered more money. But I think it also went hand in hand that uh, Manfred really wants the Miami market to work. They built a, a stadium here. The franchise is here. And when it fails, it looks bad on baseball. And I think that that was the goal. And the other follow-up I wanted to ask you, why are you led to believe that regardless of the ownership group, whether you know it's Jorge Mas, who's now involved with the MLS team, whoever it was that they were going to do this? Is it, is it because you got to look at financials that showed how deep in the hole they were, how you know the, the small amounts of revenue that they were making? Why are you led to believe that regardless of who took over, it's not they were going to keep the outfield together and add a pitcher. It was they were always going to break the thing apart. Yeah, well, internally, I've had a lot of friends who, uh, who have been fired from the Marlins a lot that have been fired. I have some that are still there and they're the non-operational baseball people, you know, the staff that have worked there. I've, I, you remember, I mean, I've been going to games for 20 years. They've had the same ownership for 20 years. It's been very hard to get fired from that organization. Internally, the people who work for David Sampson and Jeffrey Lawyer will tell you that they were extremely well taken care of by these guys. I mean, they did a great job within the organization. They did very poorly across the board, not just on ticket sales, but in sales in the community also. It was horrible. They didn't have naming rights. They had a terrible TV contract, the worst TV contract in all of baseball. And the other thing that, Chris, is that it doesn't matter what anybody says. It just having a close to $200 million payroll for a place that doesn't bring in fans is just not a sustainable product. So it's it's easy to say now that they would have come in and, and signed Alex Cobb or Lance Lynn or Jake Arrieta or Hugh Darvish. But once they sat down and looked at the books internally as to what this team was doing as far as making money for the, the franchise, for the club, and also looking at the payroll and the kind of escalating contracts that they're on the field players had, it just was it would have been impossible. Could Moss have come in and said, OK, I'm not going to do this exactly the way that the Romney group or the initial Bush group would have done it? Yeah, I mean, that's possible. Maybe they only would have traded Stanton or they would have traded Stanton and D. Gordon. But uh, inevitably, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that something had to give. But to me, the counter would be if there was an owner that came out and said, we're going to spend and I'm not Jeffrey Loria and I'm going to get involved in the community and I'm going to do it like, was there a chance that one year to the next with positive PR, with a push to try and make the playoffs or the push to try and make the World Series that this city would have come out for it? Because this city has been kicked in the nads now four different times by the ownership. And if there was an ownership that said, no, 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 I'm actually different and backed it up. Was there a chance that maybe all those metrics could have turned around in the space of one year? Yeah, I don't believe it. No. Okay. Um, and I also, and I also think had that plan and we'll never know, but had mm -hmm. that plan not worked, Chris, mm -hmm. and let's say hypothetically, those things that you're talking about, let's say they didn't work. Let's give it a 50, 50 shot on that. What do you think that that ownership would have done after going through that whole year right. with that 180 or whatever million dollar payroll? They would have broken up again after the year anyway. So mm -hmm. it would have been, to me, inevitable. Fans, even during the 2003 season in the old ballpark, did not come until September. It didn't matter how well they were playing until that year. Attendance has always been low. They had Stanton chasing 60 home runs last year. No one was going to the games. So, you know, I, I'm sure that Moss will do a fantastic job with the with the new soccer franchise. But I just thought it was a foolish statement to make after the fact because no one really knows for sure what anybody would have done. And that would go for the Romney group, too. We really don't know if, if they would have maybe kept the guys. Maybe they're not telling the truth. But it's it's easy to say it if you want to be in good standing with the community. So from the Moss perspective, I know exactly in my opinion, that's exactly why he did it. I don't know that for a fact either, but that's you know my opinion. All right, we're going to get a little bit more into what the, the team is doing on the field right now, the team that, that Jeter has actually put together and talked about you know, wanting to compete this year. But let's let's stay with the offseason here a little bit and go to number two, Craig, and that's Stanton. And obviously, we're going to cover this separately from the other players because, as you mentioned, he was going for 60 home runs last year. He's a National League MVP. The franchise has this history of giving away players who, you know, go to the Hall of Fame for someone else. Uh, Cabrera being sort of foremost among those. And, you know, and there are a lot of people down here who, like you say, were not going to the ballpark in big numbers, but got a little bit interested with what Stanton was doing last year because it seemed like he was starting to fulfill the big potential that had been talked about 
with him. So let's go through the Stanton trade a little bit. I mean, you mentioned earlier that you broke the story about the four teams that he would go to. What do we not know about the Marlins' efforts to try to trade Giancarlo Stanton this offseason? Yeah, the Marlins didn't handle that trade well, and that's technically the, you know, the new guys you know, making the trade. They lost all of the leverage with Stanton by basically putting it out there that he was going to be traded. They also put on this charade of telling Stanton at one point that if he didn't accept a trade to the Giants or Cardinals, that he would be a, a Marlin for life. I know Stanton has, has said since then that it was all a media fabrication, but meanwhile, his agent at the winter meetings, the first thing he said is exactly what I'm telling you, is that they were forcing him into that situation. So they had no leverage. But really, the key to this whole thing is that is that Stanton wanted to play for the Dodgers. And that was really, to me, the cusp of where this all began in the offseason. And the question is, why did it never happen? Well, the Marlins had no leverage. So when they were seeking a partner, they also had to make sure that they were going to get viable prospects back in return. And we'll talk about that with some of the other trades that they made. They can't fail on all of these trades. Like, they've failed on so many trades in the past. When you're trading away your only assets, you have to make it work. So when you looked at L.A. and you said, wow, this is a perfect fit, you know, he wants to be there. He'll accept a trade there. You know, how do we get him to the Dodgers? What people don't know is that for whatever reason, and I'm not sure exactly what this is, I've tried to dive back in, guys, to every trade the Marlins have made with the Dodgers, every kind of dealing that they've made with the Dodgers. But for whatever reason, there's a level of very big distrust between these two organizations. And I don't know where it's spurned from. And remember, this is not just Mike Hill making his own decisions now. He has to answer to Derek Jeter. And by the way, Gary Denbo, the vice president of scouting and development, is also in the conversation. So the Marlins had to make a choice. Are we going to make a trade where we don't really trust the other organization and we don't really trust the players that we're going to get back? Or do, as the owner of the team, do I hand this ball over a little bit to Gary Denbo and say, hey, look, if we make this deal with the Yankees, how confident are you at this point that we can get something viable back in return? And there is your answer. That's kind of how the whole thing went down. I think if there was a better relationship there, it, it could have happened sooner. It could have happened cleaner. And I think that Stanton would have ended up being a Dodger. And, and I think that's also the reason why Ozuna was never in the conversation for L.A. and Yelich was never in the conversation for L.A. I don't know what it is between the, the general manager, uh, Farhan Zaidi, and Andrew Friedman, the president of the team, and Mike Hill, and, and the people that work for the Marlins now. But there was some sort of clash there or something that happened. So the trade never got off the ground. And I think that had there been better relations there, guys, he would have been on the Dodgers. I'm, I'm sure of that. And so he ends up with the Yankees, and obviously the, the Yankees take on a majority of that salary. How does that trade go down? You mentioned, obviously, the relationship between Denbo and the Yankees. Do you feel like they got enough in return, and, and how did it all go down? So they were talking about the Yankees had basically told the Marlins, hey, look, if this ever comes to pass, we'd be very interested in the deal. So they always kind of had the Yankees, I, I guess, have them on speed dial. We don't have old phones anymore, so there's no speed dial. But that's what they had said. The Astros had made, made an offer to the Marlins that included some players, but they wanted the Marlins to absorb most of the salary. Chris, this was just dumping Giancarlo Stanton's salary. This is what it was. I don't personally think they did very well in terms of prospects back. They got uh, one kid, Herman, uh, who is going to pitch uh, Tuesday night for uh, Jupiter. So we'll have to monitor him. Another kid, they got an infielder named Devers. But you traded the MVP of the league and you, you got back virtually nothing. They just had to shed his salary. So inevitably, uh, when I was reporting the Dodgers, the Dodgers, the Dodgers, well, first I had uh, San Francisco and St. Louis. I was the first to report that those were the two teams that he had initially said that he would go to. And this was going back to July. But then as I found out that he would not accept the, the trade to those two teams, that's when the Marlins were at ground zero. So imagine this. The Marlins are trying to trade Stanton. They would prefer to make the deals with San Francisco and St. Louis because they were getting a ton back in return. And those two teams were willing to absorb the whole thing. Both those teams, I think it was on a Thursday night, said, no, we're out. The Marlins had to react. And so within 24 hours, every other team in baseball knew, oh, the Marlins are stuck. They're not going to be able to do anything. And the Yankees swooped right in and got them. But that's how he ended up going to New York. 
I thought the story that Stanton did after the fact was in an SI, I believe, actually, Craig, where was really interesting, where he basically talked about, you know, the ultimatum that Jeter made to him. And he was basically like, look, you haven't been here. I've been here. Mike Hill's been here. He's he's known how things have played out. And I'm just not going along this time. And I, I think we're not used to athletes uh, other than, say, LeBron flexing that kind of power. But in large part, you know, the Marlins, the previous regime gave Stanton that power by giving him this no trade clause. So he was able to flex it. Did you think that he would at some point maybe uh, relent a little bit? And maybe he, like you said, you, you were on the inside with the Cardinals and, and Giants moves that he might relent and say, OK, you know, St. Louis is a really good baseball town. It's a really good organization over the past. I mean, you're talking I mean, they're not quite the Patriots or the Spurs, but if anybody in baseball has been close to those two organizations over the past two decades, it's been the Cardinals. I mean, did you think there was any chance he might relent and say, OK, you know, that's Maybe I don't love the city of St. Louis, but that's a pretty good place to go. No, because initially I thought that he wanted to play for the Dodgers. He wanted to play in Los Angeles. So when conversations are going on, if you can picture yourself in the room between Mike Hill and Stanton's agent, the conversations are, okay, what's up with the Dodgers? <laughs> you know, get him to L.A. And, you know, the conversations are back and I'm, you know, don't know exactly how they go. Uh, no, we're not going to trade him to the Dodgers. Well, if you're not, then he's not going to play for the Cardinals or the Giants. So then what are you going to do? And then it escalates and it gets to the next level. OK, well, if you don't want to accept a trade to San Francisco or St. Louis because we've already agreed on these trades, then you're going to be stuck here. And you could see from Stan's perspective, well, I don't understand how difficult can it be to get me to L.A.? Well, if you're not going to get me to L.A., here are the other three teams that I will go to, Houston, Chicago, and New York, and stick it up here. You know what? Trade me to one of the best <laughs> teams in baseball. If it ain't going to be the Dodgers, these are the teams. And so the Marlins had to, to take a step back and say, okay, they called Houston. Houston said, okay, we're in. Here's what we'll do. You eat half the salary. We'll eat half the salary. We'll give you a couple of players back. Marlins like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. You got you to take this whole contract. It's the only way we're going to do this. Cubs are like, forget it. We just signed this guy. Hey, we're, <laughs> we're done. We got, we got no more money left for you. And the Marlins aren't dealing with the Dodgers. They don't want to deal with the Dodgers. Okay, so there's only one team left, and they have no leverage. He just told the Giants to go stick it. He said, thank you very much to the Cardinals. Now what are you guys going to do? Get me to L.A.? Or one of these four other teams, and the Marlins are sitting there going, oh, my God. We're not dealing with L.A. Houston won't take the money. Cubs said no. Cashman, what do you got? And they did the deal. That was it. All right, we'll be right back after a word from one of the other podcasts on the Five Reasons Sports Podcast Network. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Heat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Ricardo Navas, and unfortunately, the Heat have been eliminated from the playoffs because the Sixers and the referees are clearly cheating. Um, jokes aside, we're still going to be going strong. Every Monday, look for new episodes of the Heat Beat Podcast. We're going to be going into the Heat's future, past, and present, as well as going around the league, and we're going to be guest-heavy throughout this postseason run. So check us out at MIA Heat Beat on Twitter and Miami Heat Beat on Facebook so we can keep you posted on what's to come. All right, and that's not the only deal that they did this offseason. So let's move on to part two here with Craig Mish and let's get to some of the other guys because I again I think there were a lot of Marlins fans who kind of understood that Stanton might not make it to the end of that contract even when he signed the contract but I think they were expecting guys like Ozuna and Yelich in particular to form the core going forward particularly after Ozuna had the really incredible season that he had in the previous one and obviously you know Yelich was a, a you know a consistent producer and and has high upside and and all of that Take us through those two deals. So they make the Stanton deal, and then Ozuna is next, ends up with the Cardinals. Yelich ends up in the trade for Milwaukee. How did those two things go down? So after Stanton was traded, Christian Yelich wanted no part of the Marlins, and, and he wanted out very badly. Within the organization, they kind of came to the conclusion of, okay, if we're— This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, 
wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. We're going to go forward with this, and we're going to trade Stanton. We probably should keep either Ozuna or Yelich, right? Like this, this is like, we'll keep one. Who should we keep? And it's, and they go around the room and it's unanimous. We're keeping Ozuna. We don't want Yelich. Uh, he's you know, a complainer, a good player, but always an, you know, thing. Uh, they had their issues with the kid. I, whatever it was, uh, you know, behind the scenes and I can't speak to it. They just felt like Ozuna was the guy that they were going to keep, lead them into this next wave. And, uh, and they were going to move Yelich. So, by the way, going back to the Stanton trade, the whole plan was to trade uh, Stanton first and then trade D. Gordon. And then it worked out, I believe, the opposite of that because, you know, wins started happening of all these trades they were going to make. They didn't want to get caught. So they, they got rid of uh, Gordon pretty quickly. But that's, a, you know, a story for another day. So it comes to um, the first trade was Ozuna. And, um, you know, it was it was a little bit of a surprise because I thought that he would have been the second one to go. But what happened with Ozuna was they already had uh, players and the same players in the Stanton deal. And they decided at that point, okay, look, let's go ahead and we'll trade Ozuna and then we'll address Yelich when we have to address him. So basically they love the player, the pitcher, Sandy Alcantara, who was going to be in the Stanton deal anyway. The Cardinals were still willing to move the deal. They, so they did the deal for Ozuna and Ozuna's gone. Then Yelich is still there. Publicly, he was very quiet with the whole thing. Privately, you know that he guys wanted to trade. You know, uh, JT Romuto also came out. He wanted to trade. That was not a coincidence. Okay, you know, I I, I know JT fairly well, and and this is and it, 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 it surprised me to hear this story that he wanted to trade. Also, personally, I believe that that also came from somebody else, and it could have been Yelich. Another story for another. Craig, before you move on, I got one thing on Yelich. I mean, my only, our only real interaction with him. Were, were you, Chris, were you and I doing yeah. the radio mm-hmm. show together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we had, we were trying for the longest time to get Marlins to come on with us on the radio show that we were doing together. And, you know, the Heat, obviously, we had, you know, we had the contract there. So we could get Heat guys. We could get the occasional Dolphins guy. We could not get a Marlin guy. So finally, they agreed to give us Yelich. And he was awful, just awful. Wanted five, no part five word of answers. Five yeah. word answers. I mean, we were. I mean, Chris Perkins, you know, can get anybody to talk, and he just, it just wasn't happening. Like the three of us were trying really, really hard, couldn't get anything out did, of him. Did, did we end up running it? I think we ended up running it anyway. No, we <laughs> ran it. We ran it reluctantly. We ran it. But yeah. then what ended up happening was interestingly. Like, I don't know Christian Yelich again. I my primarily of the past few years had covered the Heat, so I wasn't around them very much. And all of a sudden, I got a. A couple days later, over the weekend, I got a DM on Twitter from Yelich, and it was totally out of the blue, and it was basically like this long apology for the way that he acted on the interview, and he's like, <laughs> basically, he said, I just can't stand it here anymore. And this was, again, this was before, I mean, this was not this past season, this was the season prior, and he's like, we're trying to change the culture around here, but it's it's really challenging. And that really struck me that, like, he... I mean, first thing, gave a damn about this horrible, horrible interview he gave with us, but also that he was just so open with somebody he doesn't know who's in the media and saying, 
yeah, it sucks here, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so so it, it doesn't surprise me at all that he would have that reaction. I can't speak for every player, and I can't speak for every situation, but internally the Marlins believed that he was a negative, that he was a negative to the team, and he did not have a great attitude. I know they believe that for sure. Maybe the Brewers will tell you different. Maybe he's been phenomenal with Milwaukee. I personally don't know him that well. So, um, you know, I can't speak to that, but they believe that he was a negative. And I can tell you unequivocally, the most positive guy on that team, the guy that is first every single time a guy hits a home run, watch any game you see coming up is JT Real Muto. He is the first guy up there to high five. I was shocked when I heard that he was somebody that wanted to trade. And um, listen, whether this came out by himself or it was his own opinion, I can't speak to that. I just simply believe that he was influenced by outside sources on that. So Ozuna wants to be here. He's traded. He would have been happy here. Uh, I do miss him. That was a little bit premature. I think that they could have even traded him now and gotten a pretty good return for him. I I think that, you know, he's a star in the league and a a great player, uh, happy to be around, great to the fans, great to the media. I was sad to see him go. Uh, So Yelich goes too, and those were the, the four. The Yelich trade, Yelich was, uh, the, the Marlins would have preferred for him to go to Toronto. They had a better deal on the table. The Blue Jays didn't want to do it. You know, uh, Miami wanted either uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. or uh, Dante Bichette's son, Bo Bichette. Brad Ziegler, you know, also potentially was involved in that deal going back to Toronto. It was a little bit of a mess. The, the, the Brewers were very happy to give up the four players they did to the Marlins, and we'll have to see how that trade works out. I also know that the Brewers were very happy that they didn't trade their best second base prospect, Keston Hura, and instead they gave the Marlins Isan Diaz. So work in progress with those four players they got from Milwaukee, as you see right now on the field with some of the results there. But uh, not everything went the way the Marlins thought it would. The Ozuna trade was fine for them. They wanted him to go to St. Louis, cool. D. Gordon to Seattle, cool. They would have preferred Stanton to get more for him. They had no leverage. And then with Yelich, it was it was Toronto or Milwaukee all along, and it ended up being the Brewers. All right, let's get to number four here. And, and this is a, a core question uh, that you asked, and, and I think this is at the heart of everything. Because if you want to believe in what Jeter and this group are doing, you have to believe in the people that they have in place to make these decisions. You mentioned Denbo, but also Mike Hill is still there. And so he was behind a lot of the decisions from the previous regime. And, and you asked this question, so I'm going to throw it back at you. And maybe you meant this as rhetorical, but I'm going to try to get you to answer it, Craig. You said, why should we believe all of a sudden now that all these trades will work when there's a history of losing prospects? Isn't Mike Hill still the president? So how will this be different? Because you, you mentioned the Milwaukee trade, and I think that's the one that we were most excited about because you got a couple of outfielders with, with pretty high upsides. I know Brinson's gotten off to a, a really slow start, but there was, again, some excitement about him because he's local and he's personable and he seems to have a multi-tool skill set. But answer your own question, Craig. I mean, should we feel better about this if some of the same people are making the decisions? I think so, because they're, to me, the underlying factor always with any trade that's made in baseball in general is going to go through ownership. And I, I think that's that's something that's lost with a lot of people that make trades. They think it's always the vice presidents or the presidents of the team or the general managers. But all big trades have to go through the owners of Major League Baseball, which is why you know the Baltimore Orioles notoriously through the years have a hard time making trades. They have a hard time signing players because it always goes through Peter Angelos. Well, The Marlins were no different for all of these years. Anytime that a trade had to go through, it always went through the owner, Jeffrey Loria, who desperately wanted to win. And in terms of baseball knowledge, I would say it was extremely high, very high acumen for prospects, knows the game very well. He was very personable when you're talking baseball. You could sit down and talk to him for a half hour, 45 minutes, two hours. He loved talking baseball. He was a smart guy and he really wanted to win. But guys, he was not as smart as the general managers and the executives of the game. And that was his downfall. And that was David Sampson's downfall, too, was thinking they always knew more than everybody else. And rival executives would tell me that the way that you made a trade with the Marlins, what executives would do is they would open up, and this is as crazy as sounding as it is, they would open up a baseball America. And they would go through all of the players that were on the Marlins. And the reason why they would do this is because they weren't interested in finding out information on the Marlins. They already knew it. They had already sent their scouts. They knew who they wanted. They wanted to know if Jeffrey Loria knew the players. And if there was any player that was mentioned in Baseball America, that was not a player. 
that an opposing team would ask for because they knew that Loria would know who he was and he would reference Baseball America and say, oh, this guy's in Baseball America. I'm not going to trade this guy. He's great. But if you could find somebody that wasn't in there and you could propose a trade, you may get that player back for the Marlins and he'd be willing to make that trade. And I think that's crazy, but that's what I had heard. And I had heard it from more than one person. That's that the way that you made trades is that you had to find guys that were flying under the radar. And that's how a couple of different trades were made with some international prospects. Again, Jeffrey Loria wanted to win very badly at all costs. So a lot of times prospects had to go and washed up players had to come back. And the way that those players were dealt was they didn't really have high markups and they weren't rated very high by a publication. And that's how he would say okay to deals. <laughs> that's insane. That's, that's, ridiculous, man. <laughs> that's ridiculous. So for me, a follow-up would be, I mean, there's a zillion follow-ups, but is one that Michael Hill still has his job, at least in part, because he sold Derek Jeter, hey, man. <laughs> I, I cannot be totally blamed for these trades because Baseball America made some of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's fair. I mean, look, I don't know what happened there, and, and I'm not sure. I mean, I know Mike very well personally, too. So I definitely do think that he has to fall on the sword because he is the team president for the trades. But a lot of these deals, guys, were not made by him. Like, for example, last year at the end of the season, we get to September, right? You know, around the trade deadline, the Colorado Rockies call the Marlins and they say, you know, we really need a backup catcher for, you know, for the stretch run. So the Marlins say, okay, you know, we'll, you know, they ask for A.J. Ellis. Okay, so the Marlins say, okay, you know, we'll trade you A.J. Ellis. Just send us back a prospect. And we'll do the deal. So the Marlins say, okay, well, you know, how are we going to split up the money? It's a few hundred thousand dollars left on his salary. So the Rockies say, well, you know, we'll uh, split the salary, you know, even, you know, we'll take half, you'll take half, we'll send you back a prospect. And uh, the Marlins are like, wow, okay, so we're going to get a prospect back. We get to save half the money. Let's do the deal. Boom. They got a deal. All right, fine. They get into, you know, to do the deal. David Sampson comes in and says, no, 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 no. We're not doing this deal. They got to pay the whole salary. And the Marlins are like, what? Like, no, 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 we, we have a deal. Like, we're going to get a prospect back. And we'll, we'll split it. And, and, and they'll have Ellis. We'll have the prospect. And we don't have to pay. No, 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 no. Either they pay the whole thing or there is no deal. So A.J. Ellis is on the Marlins. The Marlins pay all of his money for the rest of the season. And they get no prospect. They could have saved themselves a couple hundred grand and gotten back a player from the Rockies. But instead, because of an ego, they got nothing. And they paid A.J. Ellis for the rest of the season. <laughs> and, the, and this was going on for 15 years. So how can all of this go on Mike Hill? It cannot go on Mike Hill. And look, if they lose 100 games or 110, I, I, first of all, I picked them to win 68 games, which is more than anybody else. So I don't know if that's going to work out. But if they lose a lot, you know what? Mike Hill's probably going to take the fall after this year, man. And, it's, and I don't know that that's, you know, I don't know that that's 100% right because, you know, a lot of the things that he's done, he isn't really inevitably responsible for. Player development, draft picks, uh, you know, you know, and there's been stories about the draft, too, that are incredible, you wouldn't believe. And this is important, really important to me, because here's as, as, as somebody who follows baseball and, you know, kind of, Chris, like how you want soccer to work, kind of like how Ethan, how you want the NBA to work. It's important for our jobs. I mean, it is important for me, uh, being a baseball guy in South Florida, for the Marlins to work. And I'm candid about that. I want it to be successful because I have a vested interest in people being interested in what I have to say. If, if no one's interested in what I have to say, then, then what's the point? I mean, I have a national show. It's fantasy-related. But I would love to see some interest in the Marlins. And the only way that this is going to happen is if they hit on the draft picks. I mean, this is the only way. I don't care what anybody says. The players that they got in all of these trades, whether they work or don't work, is going to be irrelevant in three years. The teams that are winning are tanking to get the first pick in the first round and the first pick in the second round and the first pick in the third round. I can go on and on. And these teams are winning like that with the Cubs and the Astros. Those are the teams that have been brought up. It's also international scouting like the Washington Nationals have done. How do you think the Atlanta Braves have gotten to this point? It's not through making trades. It's through building assets, through the draft, and through international scouting. And the Marlins have been a miserable failure in the draft. And, and I can make the case they have been the worst in baseball for a very, very long time. And there's two reasons for that. And the first is, is because they don't spend any money developing their players at the minor league level. They spend less than any teams in Major League Baseball. They're all the way at the bottom. And so legitimately, they could actually be drafting well, but they don't have the people to develop 18-year-old kids, and they fail. 
and they keep changing the guys who were developing these players under the previous regime, and maybe now they have a guy in Gary Denbo that's going to do it. I don't know that they will, but this is different from the old regime. They had no clue what they were doing. They didn't spend the money to do it. David Sampson said taking a player internationally was flipping a coin. These are the best players in baseball he's talking about, and he would tell people it's like a coin flip. And so this all came to a head last year, I think, for the final time. And can you imagine in a draft where the night before the draft, after the Marlins have done all of their scouting, they've scouted, they've decided exactly who they're going to take, and the owner of the team calls up Stan Meek. Stan Meek is the director of uh, minor league scouting. He's involved in the draft. He's been with the Marlins the last 15, 20 years. Honestly, it has not gone well for Stan Meek. <laughs> this is, it just has not. <laughs> they have not drafted anyone virtually outside of the name Christian Yelich and Jose Fernandez in the first round. We're going on like 15, 20 years, guys. I mean, missing on every single pick in the first round. So the owner, Jeffrey Loria, he has had enough of this. And remember, there is a divide in the Marlins organization because you have Mike Hill on one side. Now, all of a sudden, you know, last year or two years ago, Jeffrey Loria, he brings in a new general assistant general manager and Berger, an executive in McAvoy, an executive in Del Piano. These are all names you'll have to Google. They're all still getting paid now, by the way. But these were guys that were under the influence of Jeffrey Loria. And so uh, Stan Meeke has this idea. We're going to draft this kid Rogers, a pitcher. A high school pitcher in the first round, and, and that's what we're going to do. Well, you know, Jeffrey Luria the night before calls Stan Meek and says, no, this is not what you're going to do. You're going to take another kid, a first baseman, and his name is Evan White. This is the guy we want you to take. And so Stan Meek says, okay, I guess uh, then that's what we'll do. Now, you can, can you imagine? He scouted. Imagine any draft, NFL draft, <laughs> NBA draft. The team knows who they're taking, and then the night before, the owner calls and says, you got to take somebody else. So Stan Meek's like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So he calls Mike Hill. He's like, oh, I got to figure this out. I mean, what, what, what am I supposed to do here? Mike Hill's like, oh, no, we can't do this. We already have the plan, the plan. But meanwhile, these other guys who are there, they, they, you know, they don't like Mike Hill. They're, they want to take their guy. Finally, I guess they get a hold of David Sampson. And they said, listen, David, you got to talk to Jeffrey Lord. You got to talk to him. We're not going to just change our first pick the night before the draft. So Samson talks to Jeffrey Loria. Loria's like, you know what? The bleep with it. Fine. Take your guy that you want, Rogers. Seattle ends up taking this kid, Evan White. The Marlins end up taking this kid, Rogers. And then the deal is done. So the next day is the second day of the draft, just like the NFL draft. You know, you, know, you, you sit down, all the team gets together. All of a sudden, all of those guys who wanted to take this Evan White, they don't show up to the Marlins draft on, the, on day two. They just don't show up. They were so pissed that the Marlins took the guy that they didn't want that they decide they don't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> so so, so Gloria's got to get on the phone. What are you guys doing? You guys got to be here. We're doing the draft. Oh, no, no, no. You didn't do what we said. Guys, I cannot make up this kind of stuff. Like, <laughs> eventually, eventually, they all show up. They do their draft or whatever. But this just shows you the influence over the years and the lack of focus that they had on doing, you know, one specific thing. Uh, the owner almost basically made them take a different player. And by the way, he was right, the owner, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> I think he was right in this spot. I think he was. But, uh, and I think he's right on some other spots too. Jeff, you know, Jeffrey Lord is a smart guy, man. He knew, ba he knew baseball a lot. I mean, a lot more than a lot of other people give him credit. I think for. a lot of the audience would be, would be surprised to hear you say that. He did. He knew he very smart baseball guy. Highly, highly intelligent. But Chris, not as smart as the guys he was playing ball against on the other side. <laughs> not as smart as John Mosellock. Not as smart as Jeffrey Luno. Not as smart as Dave Dombrowski. And when you're Jeffrey Luno, you're smart as Scott Boris, apparently. And you're going to lose all those battles, man. You're going to lose them all. And he lost them all. But also, I mean, you mentioned uh, the trades, but also the contracts. Like, I mean, Luria stepped all over him on a lot of those, too, right? Like, in terms of free agents. Like, I mean, wasn't John Buck... His was Saltamakia. His we were you and I were texting a little bit about some of their worst contracts they put together. Heath Bell was was Luria's too, wasn't it? I mean, so it, it seems like he would identify a guy in free agency and just decide he was going to pay that guy, which again runs counter to this idea that he didn't care about winning. He cared about winning, I guess, but just in a hopelessly misguided fashion. <laughs> correct, right? I mean, isn't he? That he, more he, wa he wanted accurate? to. He wanted to show the rest of his staff that he was smart, that he could do their job. I mean, that's what he did. The Marlins were negotiating with Wei Yin Chen, and they couldn't get a deal done because there were a couple of other teams involved. 
And, you know, Mike Hill's, you know, banging it out, trying to get the deal done with Scott Boris. You know, they're talking, going back and forth. And there's other, Scott's like, oh, there's other teams involved. You got to step it up. You got to step it up. And then Mike Hill goes back and, you know, and the owner says, what's the deal? Why can't we get Wei Yin Chen? I don't get it. Well, you know, I mean, look at the It's crazy. Like, look how much money we're going to have to pay this guy. You know, I don't know. Well, you know what? I'm going to talk to Scott Boris personally, and I'm going to get this deal done myself. And Scott Boris says, okay, they meet together, him and Jeffrey Loria, they shake hands, and that's the deal you see. It's Wei Yin Chen's deal, courtesy of Jeffrey Loria. That's how it went down. It was him. He was the one, one-on-one, that negotiated the deal with Chen. And now, a word from another of the podcasts in our Five Reasons Sports Podcast Network. Hello, this is Chris Joseph, co-host of The Bulls Cast. Some of you might have heard our earlier promos on this podcast and wondered, what in the holy is Ballscast thing all about? Well, Ballscast is a comedy podcast about Miami sports, culture, and politics, and sex, and food. You know, all the shit that matters to those of us who call the 305 home. We also throw in parody songs and comedy sketches and invite the occasional cool-ass guests and my co-host Slim and I do all of this while completely baked out of our gourds. So, if you love Miami sports, but you're also into laughing and living your fullest life in this beautiful city we call our home, then please download Ballscast wherever you consume your podcasts. Then, sit back, relax, and enjoy the crazy. Now, listen to some fart noises. All right, let's move on to number five here, which is the future, Craig. And we've talked a little bit about this and where this might go and and Jeter trying to make it work here. Let's get into some of the things that he's done so far, if you think they'll make any difference. He he clearly is trying to be more responsive to fans. I mean, whether it was the letter after opening day or some of the things they've done in the community, I don't know where you come down on the Marlins man controversy, but it does seem like he's trying to do some things to endear himself down here and trying to at least make the case of them trying to compete, whether people believe that or not. If you were Derek Jeter right now with this team, what would you be doing? First of all, Marlins man gave me um, two tickets to sit in the front row of left field at home run derby last year, just as a total transparency piece of information. Now uh, on to uh, how they've handled it um, in, in terms of fans. I take my son every Sunday so I kind of see, uh, you know, some small, subtle changes happening. They put a little area there where you can take pictures with the new Billy the Marlin, not the fired Billy the Marlin. Rest in, uh, rest in peace, old Billy the Marlin. Which is, which my only beef the whole offseason was them firing Billy the Marlin, really. Everything else I was okay with. That one I didn't sit well with me. Um, uh, for me, it was the Sea Creatures race. <laughs> I had to stop at some point, Chris. I mean, I, I, you know, I get um, so I, I, I can't find anything tangible right now. I've made some suggestions to them as to as to how I've, I've I haven't done a Demolo booth. I've done a Michelo booth. I just kind of give them my suggestions and tell them, you know, what I think. I think they're listening to me. I think they're listening to some other people. I, and I'm not making an excuse here. But they took over a Major League Baseball organization in November, three months before. They had to start the season. It's not enough time. I think they're going to uh, let go of a lot of people this offseason. I think we're going to be going through this again with executives and team and, and players and, and all kinds of people. I, I just, they just needed people to survive the offseason, like just from an administrative yeah, point of view. That's it. That's it. Let's get, you know what? We got the team. Oh, let's high five. Let's drink some champagne. But honestly, what? how much can we really do in three months to get this thing ready? Let's chop down as much salary as we possibly can. So we're not getting destroyed on the books. And then let's reassess this in the offseason. Maybe I'll be wrong. I think significant changes will happen. I think you'll see a lot more fan interaction. I think you'll see some great ideas coming out of the team. They'll hire some great marketers and get some idea people in how to bring people back to the ballpark next year. If they don't, we'll do this podcast again and I'll say that I'm wrong. But I don't think they had enough. It was only a few months and I don't think that you could just jump in three months before a season starts and say, okay, let's change this whole thing right now. They're like, let's just get through this year. One of the things that's in Project Wolverine, though, is they're basically accounting for increased attendance this year, and yet they've taken the step of transparently announcing smaller crowds than used to exist. And I would imagine, I don't know this to be so, but just based off the fact that number is so much smaller, not giving away as many tickets to games as maybe the previous regime did. So... Where does that kind of factor in in those ideas, those initiatives? Is They're obviously going to have a significantly decreased, at least announced attendance 
from what they had a year ago. Yeah, I, I don't know because that's just not going to happen. It's not realistic. And the report in Project Wolverine, that was a, a pretty big a red flag because I, I can't see it. I don't know what they're thinking. Somebody had suggested to me, and I don't know that this is true, maybe another conspiracy theory, but you know, somebody who I trust actually suggested, hey, look, what, the, you know, what could happen here is they want to just really strip down the attendance to its bare bones in 2018 so that it will increase in 2019. You can't get it Create a growth right. narrative. So, it's going up. And, and, right. And then, so no matter what, guys, you know that they're going to have an increase next year, right? It cannot get any worse than this year. It's impossible. So maybe Jeter at that point can say, hey, look, we're up 9% over 2018. And that's a fact. It's going to go up next year. I mean, the team's going to be better, I think, next year than it will this year. I don't know that that's true. And that's just throwing, you know, spitballing ideas out there. You know, look, I, I heard, you know, Dan Levitard's interview with uh, Rob Manfred. I, you know, Barry, you know, did a phenomenal job reporting all the Project Wolverine stuff. But honestly, that's just not really my expertise. So I've, I'm kind of following along the same way that you guys are, having the same ideas and beliefs that you guys are, and just sharing opinions. But anything that's factual was just in that report. We can agree on some. We can disagree on some. It's very clear, though, there will not be an attendance increase this year from last year. But I think there's a good shot that this thing will go up year after year. All right, Craig, great stuff, uh, stuff you won't hear anywhere else about the Marlins. We appreciate you joining us. Um, again, you can... Can I, can I, can I very Go quickly, ahead. like, as, like, a general takeaway, I was thinking about this earlier today as well as it related to the Florida Ice Hockey Panthers, and I was, I was thinking about this because they went to, or because Vegas is going to the conference finals. They beat San Jose on Sunday night, so they're going to the conference finals, and I basically kind of thought... The, the Golden Knights are doing this with the Panthers coach and a few of their players, and the Marlins have this stuff. If anybody cared about either the Panthers or the Marlins, these would be giant scandals. Like, they get to operate in this shroud of secrecy because no one in the city cares. The idea that the Panthers gave away the core of a team for one year after making the playoffs and have basically gifted it to Las Vegas so that they can make the conference finals as the Panthers finish in ninth yet again and the Marlins have all this bleep happening basically and no one realizes this. It's kind of incredible, isn't it? Yeah, uh, you know, I can't speak to the Panthers. I mean, I know their coach is headed to the Western Conference Finals, right? That's a great point, you know. And I wish, you know, I want this to succeed to be more interest. And, you know, I always get these sort of questions because these are, are stories, by the way, through the years that I've known and stories that I've told to other people. And they all have the same reaction that you guys have. And, you know, slowly, publicly, you know, sometimes on the radio, I'll, I'll mention, you know, these sort of things, not to the extent that I have here. But it is amazing. And it really also goes back to the first initial part of, of the conversation that we're talking about. We have some really good people who have covered the Marlins here for a long time. Clark Spencer of the Herald, Barry Jackson of the Herald, Joe Frazzaro, who now is with MLB.com. But that's kind of why I jumped into this whole thing was because I'm like, man, like, where are the stories? Where are we on the national map of covering the Marlins? We really need someone to get stir it up, you know, to find out what's really going on. And that's where I found my niche with this whole thing. But the unfortunate part, guys, is they've traded everybody. I got nobody left. I got, I got one left. I got no stories. I'm going to be out of stories for here pretty soon. So that is the the uh, the cycle of some of these teams is is everybody goes all your sources go and then it's great when they're going because you're first on it but then you're like okay yeah now what do I do so uh, I'm in trouble after this year yeah I'm, uh, I don't know uh, <laughs> ho 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 hopefully you'll uh, you'll get some new ones all right Craig thanks for joining us we appreciate it you've been a supporter of ours from the start so we really do appreciate that you can follow him at Craig Mish again he does a lot of fantasy stuff on Sirius XM also as you can tell. A baseball expert, been here a long time. Craig and I used to do Mikasuki together back yes, in the day. That did. that goes uh, with, with Bo Camper and Rose. That goes back what a was long that? way. Mikasuki, what? Mikasuki Sports. You, you know what? You know what happened was uh, when I when I started breaking the Dolphins stories, somebody asked me who my you know some stupid person will always ask me on Twitter who my source is and how do I know? It's like one out of a thousand people who like really think I'm going to just say who. <laughs> so somebody, right. so, yeah, here it is. Here's the person. It's 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 Mike Hill. He's telling me everything. And I was like, come on. I'm really going to, even if it was, would I say that? So I said Kim Camper was my source on all the Dolphins information. I put it out, you know, as, as, as a joke. Uh, that's People good believe stuff. That. 
Kim's got a new restaurant in Las Olas, so he's uh, he's doing fine without giving you all the Dolphins news. But uh, great stuff, Craig, and and definitely uh, definitely follow him. And as always, you can follow us. Uh, iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, CastBox, all those other places. Follow our other pods as well, and follow us at Five Reasons Sports. We'll have plenty of updates. We're starting to release uh, clips from the various pods as well there, so you can get a little bit of preview before you download. Thanks for listening. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.